Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection. Today, we're super excited to release our podcast with Peter Marsh, who is the co-founder of Flywheel Consulting, as well as Converge, the Converge South Conference that's coming up here in Concord, North Carolina, in just a few weeks. We go through Peter's great entrepreneurial story, winding up with the launch of Flywheel Consulting in the past decade, and ultimately winding up with the Converge South Conference and how it's all come together and how it looks to shape the future of startups and the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the Carolinas for the coming decade. Enjoy today's episode. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you join us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, we're going to have a good time, so I'm excited. As a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, actually, I had no idea. I was privileged to, to grow up in a, a family with uh, two sisters and a brother, and uh, we were kind of like a tribe, a uh, creative tribe that uh, was always cooking up uh, amazing things to do. And my parents actually gave us a huge radius of play, meaning they would kick us outside and say, just go do something creative. And um, we invented all kinds of fun and games to play with. and. A lot of it had to do with building things, making things, and that kind of eventually led to my career in um, design and ultimately architecture. So uh, that's that's kind of how I got got down that path. So you started in architecture. Um, you've been in the architecture business industry for a couple years. <laughs> yeah, just a few. So uh, actually, I started. Um, in Boston after uh, getting out of college. I, I went to Dartmouth for a couple of years and then Duke University, graduated from Duke, and uh, was gonna go to law school in Boston and decided that a legal career was not for me, so I, I uh, actually got a job in a, in a fine woodworking shop and apprenticed with a master cabinet maker. Uh, and that was the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey in, in the design and construction business. It started out actually in cabinet making, and then um, I eventually became the owner of a architectural millwork company that did large uh, fine woodworking projects in the Boston region. Moved down to North Carolina because of the furniture industry. Started another millwork company uh, that was very successful. I sold that. Got into residential furniture. Started a residential furniture company and sold that and then went into the commercial furniture industry, which led to uh, me uh, working for Steelcase, which is a very large uh, uh, global manufacturer of commercial office furniture. And I was involved in um, uh, their high design brands and uh, traveled all over the United States, South America, and Europe uh, on behalf of that company, uh, helping them uh, launch products and listen to customers and find out what the market needs were for the evolving uh, workplace. And uh, fortunately, uh, in the year 2000, I decided that uh, I needed to spend more time with my family and kids, and that's what led to us starting our design business in the year 2000, um, uh, shortly before 9-11, which made uh, traveling hellacious. Yeah. Uh, so it was good timing, uh, serendipitous on my part, but uh, we decided to kind of focus full-time on the design side of the business, uh, and uh, because of my career and all of the contacts that I had made 
across the United States in the commercial furniture industry, we, we immediately got quite a lot of work, primarily designing corporate headquarters and uh, medical office buildings and uh, educational and institutional kind of work. When you say we, you've got a co-founder or you've got a... Yeah, my wife, actually, uh, who started the, was one of the uh, two people that started the interior design practice for a very large architectural firm here in Charlotte called Little Diversified Architecture. Okay. They were the first two designers that Little hired uh, on the interior side of the business. And uh, she and I got married in uh, 1998 and uh, for various reasons, mainly work-life adjustment, we decided to start our own design practice based in uh, Central North Carolina in Winston-Salem. And um, it was uh, a good move on our part, very successful. That has now grown after 24 years into a, a full-service architectural firm. So we do, uh, we design new buildings, renovate existing buildings. We do a lot of historic renovation projects and quite a lot of uh, interior design for uh, corporate, medical, and educational clients. How many employees do you have with the firm? There's 10, 10 designers in the firm, okay. uh, three architects, seven interior designers, okay. including myself. Um, but now, actually, my focus now is full-time on Flywheel, which is a uh, uh, yet another business that we started back in 2014. Don't um, they say don't go into business with your spouse there, Peter? <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, I, I would not recommend it for everyone. Cause yeah. it, it, for the majority of people, I don't think it would work. But uh, my spouse and I are, are fabulous partners and we're able to shut work off, you know, when we need to. And uh, it, it it's just something that works extremely well for us. And now, of course, we have a lot of additional partners in all of the businesses that we're involved in. So you're growing a successful design firm. You know, started you know early 2000s. You're growing and it's doing fine. Um, everything's spinning along at a nice pace. Why? Why flywheel? Why? Why kind of introduce yourself into the co-working space? Right? Why add additional complexity and levels yeah. to your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And <laughs> Probably knowing what we know now, I'm, uh, we might not have done it back in uh, 2014 when we made the decision to get into the co-working business. Um, so the the shortest answer to that is uh, in our architectural and design practice, uh, where we consider ourselves to be a progressive uh, firm, uh, trying to stay uh, kind of at the leading edge of research and the leading edge of uh, different ways to offer work workplace solutions to our clients. Uh, so we're considered to be one of the thought leaders. We do research-based design. Um, and uh, a lot of our larger clients, particularly in the financial sector, so we've, we've uh, these are names that some people may have forgotten, but First Union, uh, Nations Bank, uh, you know, which are now, you know, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. We've worked with those institutions over a long period of time, and like many large corporations, they're always interested in how do we optimize our real estate portfolio, how do we get more productivity out of our work environments, how do we do a better job uh, supporting our associates, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been involved in a lot of portfolio optimization studies and 
advanced work environment analyses and uh, working with uh, the major manufacturers in the industry, which is, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, complemented by my experience working with Steelcase. And uh, so in doing that work, we've always followed trends like uh, telecommuting, hot desking, things of that nature, which were, you know, kind of all great ideas about how to how to run alternative officing solutions uh, and, and do a better job with the real estate portfolio. But quite honestly, none of that ever worked very well. Uh, and uh, those kind of strategies were never really fully embraced by the broader employment base of white, white collar organizations that we were designing for. And uh, when co-working started emerging on the West Coast back in 2007, we thought it was kind of a uh, really interesting kind of concept and a new trend in flexible alternative kind of work environments. So we started tracking it. And then by 2010, we knew that it was going to be a substantial influence on how uh, office design is delivered in the future. Uh, and so, for better or for worse, we decided we're going to get into the business to actually really completely understand this from the inside out as an operator so that we can better inform our corporate clients about what this is all about, why it works so well, and all that kind of thing. And what's attractive about co-working if you're a corporate organization is uh, you get very high seated density in co-working environments. In other words, um, you can get a lot more people working out of less square footage than has ever been achievable in the past in any other kind of strategy for office design. And that's the secret, is that uh, you, can, you can do that and people like it. Yeah. You know, and if you tried to do that using any of the other strategies of the past, you would have had a rebellion on your hands um, in, in terms of the way you were delivering office product and office design. So we knowing that that was kind of a magic thing that was happening we decided we need to needed to understand it from the inside out we decided to open our first space um, one of our largest clients historically has been wake forest university okay yeah and um, we were in the midst of helping them with uh, some master planning work and delivering some of the early projects in what is now the wake forest innovation quarter uh, we were the project manager on Biotech Place and some of the other signature projects in that development. And when we started uh, letting our clients know that we were going to get into the co-working business, Wake Forest said, well, of course you're going to do it in the innovation quarter. And we said, of course, because you're our biggest client. We will gladly do that. Um, and that was one of the kind of serendipitous key ingredients that happened in terms of our evolution as uh, a different kind of space provider in the co-working industry. So what I mean by that is we, we started uh, in Winston-Salem uh, with our first space in the heart of the, the Innovation Quarter, which is uh, one of the largest uh, central urban master-planned innovation districts in, in the United States. And uh, uh, what, we dis what we discovered was in secondary and tertiary sized markets, like when you, once you get out of the major markets, which is where operators like 
WeWork and Industrious and the, the, the really big chain operators, they, they only operate in, in major markets because the demographics are so strong that if you build a cool space, they will come. Yep. That is not true in secondary and, and tertiary markets and in more kind of rural markets or satellite markets to the major cities, right? So we didn't know that going in, uh, and we didn't know that Winston-Salem uh, didn't have that demographic strength to support a, a kind of larger, profitable uh, co-working um, space. And one of, the, one of the secrets to running a profitable co-working location is it has to be big enough to have enough private offices to drive the revenue lines and enough co-working seats to drive your revenue lines. So the smaller spaces, 10,000 square feet and below, almost all fail. So you have, you have to open a fairly sizable space to, to achieve profitability uh, based on your product offerings. Um, and that's hard to do in smaller markets, right? It's hard to actually fill all the seats in a 20,000 square foot space in a second and third tier size market. So we didn't know that going in. You know, we blithely opened our beautiful space and uh, it was a substantial investment. And about seven months into it, we realized that our membership numbers were beginning to plateau and we were uh, well short of the profitability number that we needed to achieve in terms of uh, our, our membership base. And that's when, uh, you know, kind of innovation out of desperation occurred. Uh, which was we realized in order to be successful in that kind of uh, uh, in those kind of market dynamics that we had to shift our business model from being kind of a real estate mindset to really be more more of an economic development mindset and we started exploring how can we fill our seats by actually starting companies stimulating the uh, entrepreneurship ecosystem in Winston-Salem and actually getting involved in uh, scalable, investable startup company creation. And that's the business that we're in today. We're in the business of providing infrastructure for entrepreneurs and helping communities activate their entrepreneurship ecosystems and helping communities create significant flow of uh, company creation, whether it's Main Street or scalable, investable startups, or project-based kind of work that, that tends to get created within our membership communities in, in the regions that we serve. So we, we started exploring that business model. Um, we had heard about this really successful operation over in Durham at American Underground called the Startup Factory that uh, Chris Hively and David Neal, who are kind of legends in the in the startup community uh, had had initiated and uh, went over, talked to them, you know, how does this work? How do you actually, uh, you know, run accelerator programs and uh, create a, a pipeline of um, entrepreneurs to come into a community or to come out of the woodwork in a community and get engaged in a community-based workspace environment where startup company creation can occur. And they, um, they gave us a lot of really good advice, uh, which we internalized. Uh, was any of that advice, don't do it? <laughs> uh, no, some of it was, this is really hard, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's not a short-term play either. Um, 
you know, that when when we talk to our partners in the various communities that we now serve, a lot of them are economic development corporations. So, for example, our Concord location, it was the EDC that actually recruited us to Concord to uh, open what is now uh, the Cabrera Center and is a very successful operation here just north of Charlotte. Um, and in the, in the economic development business, the, uh, historically it's always been about bricks and mortar and recruiting big companies to come in and build manufacturing facilities or distribution centers or relocate their offices and that kind of thing. It's, it's always been about recruitment, which leads to uh, increase in the property tax base and the, um, and the employment tax base. The old-fashioned make a splash on the front page of the newspaper, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the truth of the matter is, though, that uh, the vast majority of the jobs created in the United States are created by startup businesses and early-stage companies. And uh, that's a longer game. What's difficult about it is you don't see the immediate, you know, huge hits of employment growth that you see through the recruitment strategy. But what you do achieve uh, with, uh, by, you know, deploying the kind of things that we deploy in terms of uh, supporting, providing infrastructure for entrepreneurship and providing all the programming and resources, is that it's much stickier, A. Those companies tend to stick around because they're they're firmly rooted in the community and they're kind of regional patriots, you know, once they get started on their journey. So they, they're not likely to relocate. They're not likely to, you know, have, uh, you know, a corporate decision made to relocate the factory, you know, somewhere else, that type of thing. Um, so uh, much stickier kind of uh, uh, economic development. It's much more organic. And it tends to um, create, at the end of the day, more jobs than the recruiting strategy. Um, but it's it's a longer term play. It takes it takes you know, ten years before you really start to see the full results of creating that pipeline and and creating this flow of uh, company creation in the community. But the the cool thing in listening to you kind of talk there, Peter, for a, a couple minutes was, you know, as a kid and as an early adult and even as um with the design firm and, and with flywheel like everything was kind of play build learn right yeah. like so when we think build, test learn right yeah right so yeah. now we're straight back into kind of classic entrepreneurship yeah and so i mean you you were doing it i mean obviously you were doing it the entire time right you started several successful businesses sold them etc cetera, etc cetera. but in in today's lingo that you were constantly as a, even as a little kid and all the way through to, to now you're doing exactly what what they tell you to do right like yeah build fail rebuild um and and keep building up from yeah. there and respond to the market respond to the changing conditions yeah i mean co-working emerged for you know is a great example of something new new that emerged because of changing market conditions cloud computing and then it, what happened in the 1990s and early 2000s which was you know, the the response to globalization for most U.S.-based corporations was massive layoffs of mid-level management. So you had all these people that had lots of talent that weren't just not going to work anymore. Yeah. They, so they, uh, in fact, most of them were in, resourced, insourced by the companies that had laid them off as independent consultants to, you know, to avoid the benefits load and all that kind of thing. So... 
So co-working uh, actually was a response to globalization. Uh, it was a response to the emergence of cloud computing and the ability to work anywhere. Um, but it was also a response to very basic human needs, which is people, people need to socialize. They need to feel like they're part of a community, particularly entrepreneurs who are very purpose-driven and very um, uh, you know, passionate about whatever the mission is, whatever the, you know, the big problem is that they're trying to solve. They need to be in a community environment and have the support of uh, like-minded peers that want to help them execute on their mission. So it's it's a basic human need to to be um, feel to have the feeling that you're part of a community and to have the ability to socialize. So all of these, almost all of our members have the opportunity to work from home. Yeah. But they choose to work in the co-working environment because they have that social contact need and the com and the need to belong in the community. And then the second reason they they work in our our spaces is they're able to focus our the work environments that we provide are professionally designed. They're, they're designed to support community-based work, but also to support heads-down focused productivity that, that is almost impossible to achieve in a home setting. I don't, I don't care who I talk to, you know, if they're really honest with themselves, there's a lot of distractions when you try to work from home. Um, and, uh, you know, the temptation to do laundry or pet the cat or whatever it might be you know, it's just hard to resist. So um, going to that third place where they know that they can get into the zone and really focus and, and crank out a lot of work is, is another major reason people join co-working spaces. So what, so we discovered, we, you know, we were on a learning curve. We, uh, we were staring at, at the face of a huge loss in our, when we opened our first location. So this was 2015-ish, give 20, or take? 2014. 2014. Right around 2015 is yep. when we pivoted. And uh, <coughs> we had a partners meeting uh, and basically said we, we've got to do something to, to kind of activate the space and fill the seats in in these smaller communities you know how do we do that and uh the basically the idea was to you know create companies to fill the seats and to leverage the assets in the community so wake forest university winston-salem is blessed with six higher education institutions uh one of the top hbcus uh salem college uh, I know I'm going to leave two or three out. Uh, you know, a great community college system up there. So we had a lot of um, uh, educational and institutional assets in that community that were spinning out all kinds of ideas, research. You know, so there's there's a culture of uh, uh, knowledge workers. There's a culture of research and innovation that's happening in that community. Uh, that's a feeder to the kind of business model that we ultimately came up with. So if you fast forward to today, from, from all of those experiences, um, we pivoted from being a real estate mindset to an economic development mindset, and we committed ourselves to supplying all of the resources that entrepreneurs need to, uh, to accelerate their journey of development both personally and professionally, and that's important. Um, so we, we uh, you know, how we serve the entrepreneur is as important as how we're serving their startup uh, mission. Um, and the key ingredients are ideation activities, mentors, 
and capital access. Yeah. And at the time that we opened in Winston-Salem, there were zero opportunities to enter a capital stack uh, outside of Wake Forest University. You know, there were, there were some opportunities um, within Wake Forest primarily through the, the normal grant and uh, science foundation type channels, but um, there, wasn't, there was no entry point for a, a private equity capital stack in the community at the, in, when we started Flywheel. And we realized that was an essential ingredient. So uh, we launched a uh, funded accelerator program called New Ventures. And we created a, we actually went to the Wake Forest School of Law and had them help us create <clears throat> a new kind of uh, investment vehicle <clears throat> that allowed a broad sector of that of the wealth creators in the triad region of North Carolina to join together, pool small amounts of capital together to create a fund large enough to invest $50,000 in five to 10 startups per year over a five-year run. That started in 2016. And, um, and the creation of that kind of unique capital access portal really lit a match to uh, to our whole uh, business model and attracted a lot of entrepreneurs to the space. It attracted then the, the surrounding kind of service providers that like to co-locate with communities of startup founders. So <clears throat> software developers, graphic designers, uh, lawyers, accountants, you know, all the people that, that startups need to access, wealth management people, yep. right? Uh, uh, all, all the you know knowledge sets that founders need to access started to co-locate with that core group of uh, startup companies, <clears throat> and uh, so that that was kind of the final piece to the puzzle. Once we got that in place, our membership really took off. But can we stay yeah. there for just so um, really cool concept, right? So we're going to infuse fifty thousand dollars into five to ten companies per year. So just quick math, right? There's two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars per mm -hmm. year. We're going to yep. do it over a five to ten year period of time. Yep. Yep. Like you throw out the numbers kind of loosely, like we're just going to do this. But when we get to two hundred fifty to five hundred per year, and we then multiply it by five or ten years, we're not talking about uh, you know a couple of dollars here and there. Yes. We're, we're starting to talk about more significant money yep. that isn't San Francisco or Austin or even Charlotte and Charlotte has a, a, a yeah. struggle with that too right so um, how how'd you raise the how did uh, how'd you go to the triad and said hey give me five million dollars which is essentially what you did without necessarily saying give me five million dollars right yeah so what was unique about our program was uh, there it was not a general partner limited partner structure it was uh, basically kind of a democratic um, LLC structure operating under a uh, Reg D uh, exemption, and uh, uh, we so uh, Flywheel uh, and uh, our foundation plays a key role in this. So I, I need to get work in the the whole conversation about the foundation. But uh, the Flywheel Foundation administers that program on behalf of those investment vehicles. Okay. Um, and all of the decision-making process, once the application pipeline is 
screened and reviewed and we, we uh, uh, submit a book of like 20 or 30 companies to the, to the investment group to review. It's all done democratically. They, they basically vote on the companies that they want to advance to a pitch day and have them pitch to the full investment group and, and select. So it's a very different kind of setup from your normal uh, angel fund, from your normal uh, micro VC or venture capital fund in that there's, there isn't a general partner that's basically picking the companies on behalf of uh, passive investors. Everyone involved is an active investor. And what's, what's beautiful about that as a way to get an ecosystem energized is it gets all the wealth creators in the community involved in entrepreneurship in, in a way that's very low risk. I mean, they're putting in, you know, five to $10,000 versus $250,000. Um, so it's not really crowdfunding. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like crowdfunding on a on a local community basis, um, and it's also it, it operates on the principles of uh, angel investment and how angel funds are run, but with the exception that it's it's all uh, it's all democratically done, and it requires the active involvement of all the participants in the fund. So, <coughs> you mentioned this. So let's stay with it for a second before I take you back down the track to kind of the whole capital formation aspect, the the Flywheel Foundation upruns right. it and operates it, and then as a result, I assume they charge some success fee as well that then feeds into the foundation, or how does the foundation interplay with the, the fund itself? So the, the foundation is paid the administrative costs. Uh, so each year, the, when we run a new ventures program uh, there you have to there's a marketing side that to get your application pipeline filled uh, there's outbound marketing expenses and you know you, you have to really kind of hit all of the uh, entrepreneurship ecosystems and pitch the opportunity and there's there's a whole lot of work that goes into filling the funnel uh, of potential investable startups that that can be reviewed by the by the group, um, and then uh, and then there's running the accelerator program, which is no small task. I mean that's that's 90 days of incredibly intensive activity and work, uh, and uh, you know developing milestones and you know doing milestone check-ins and presentations to the investment group and so forth. So there's a there's a a fair amount of administrative load, A, running the fund, and B, running the accelerator program that's associated with the fund. <laughs> and that is submitted to the group as a, as a budget, and uh, the Flywell Foundation supplies the staff okay. and and does all the administrative work to, to run those activities. So so the, the, the back story on the foundation is, and this is kind of uh, the... You know, it's truly an entrepreneurial journey that we've been through, uh, kind of discovering what the market wants and what the market needs and how to make all this work. <clears throat> the foundation came about uh, because uh, a large corporation in the Triad region wanted to run uh, an innovation challenge. Um, so it was a sector-specific market vertical kind of innovation challenge that they wanted to publish to see what what the entrepreneurial activity was 
around, in this case, digital health. And they came to Flywheel and said, we'd like you guys to administer this challenge for us because they had seen the other new ventures uh, accelerator program activity that we had been running and they had heard about it from all the wealth creators, right? So uh, they, uh, they came to us and said, we'd like to run this innovation challenge. Uh, uh, will you do it? And of course they said, sure, we'll do it for you. And put together, you know, kind of a framework for running the challenge and the, uh, again, the administrative costs, the marketing costs and um, kind of what the timeline and what all of the, the activities required would be. And at the time, this was in uh, 2016, at the time, the primary vehicle for publishing a global innovation challenge was uh, a uh, portal run by MIT. But to, to publish on it, you had to be a nonprofit. So one of the, one of the uh, uh, responses that we made to the corporation was, look, we, we know how to do this, we can do this, we will do this for you, but we are going to have to spin up a nonprofit entity to be the entity that administers and runs the activity. Um, and so we did that in very short order. We spun up the Flywheel Foundation. Uh, and ran a very successful uh, digital health innovation challenge for um, for a, a big company up in, in central North Carolina. <clears throat> and then we realized that that was kind of the completion of our whole business model picture, that Flywheel LLC is in the business of designing and operating innovation centers, and we are interested in developing those in second and third tier size markets and satellite kind of markets around major metropolitan areas following the I-85 corridor from Northern Virginia down to Georgia. That's, that's our vision. That's what we're setting about doing. And that's the infrastructure side, design and operate innovation centers, co-working innovation centers. The nonprofit side is the mission-oriented side that now provides grants, investment funds, uh, educational curriculum events and programmings like our big Converge South, which is the big annual event of the year that we run in the regions that we support. And so it, the foundation kind of completed the picture. So our we have two sides to our organization. We have a for-profit and a non-profit side. Non-profit is mission-oriented. The for-profit provides the infrastructure. And the foundation follows us wherever we go. Uh, and one of the roles of the foundation is to work with the local uh, uh, entrepreneurship service organizations in the regions that we serve, try to identify gaps, try to identify missing resources and things of that nature, and then spinning those up and delivering those through the flywheel infrastructure is kind of how our, our that's the totality of our business model today. Yep. Um, yeah, so can I, can I hop you on the way, well, not not even necessarily the way back machine, we're just gonna put you on the kind of the, the, yeah. the back machine. Yeah. So 2013, um, well, I mean, I guess we're gonna go back to 2008, 2010, 
you're paying attention in the design space, you recognize that co-working is kind of bubbling up, yep. but you know, not quite sure. And then 2010 comes along. It's like, yeah, this is definitely different than the other things. Yep. And then 2013, in order to help y'all understand it more, you start a co-working space. We, we actually started in 2014. We okay. designed it in 2013. Designed it in 2013. And, but and we, had, we had done a lot of research from, yep. but, uh, from 2010 to 2013. We were attending all the global co-working conferences and visiting spaces around the United States and doing tons of research as to why, why this was emerging as a, as a, uh, as a uh, interesting new alternative kind of uh, workspace and all those conferences that you went to how many other people started um, a venture program an incubator program a foundation <laughs> and a conference so very few of them yeah. so this is uh, so that's kind of our unique value proposition um, as a network operating a network of co-working spaces is that um, we bring the focus on entrepreneurship to, to the locations that we operate. Almost all co-working operators uh, are in the business of kind of s- supplying beautifully designed space, but it's more of a lifestyle and a real estate play. Uh, whereas we're literally one of the, o- I think we are the only operator that is now multi-location that's delivering the economic development capability uh, and uh, we have a promise to our members that that so we've distilled this down kind of into our uh, laser specific vision mission values and our guarantee to our members and we guarantee to all our members that uh, we will actively promote their personal and professional development as a member of our space so most co-working spaces operate on a passive model you know, they, they have community managers and so forth, and they run, you know, events and things of that nature, but they don't make the promise to that member that by being a member of one of our co-working communities, we are going to actively participate in your development. We're, we're going to try to find customers, connect you with resources, provide capital access, provide targeted instructional programming that, that we have developed, you know, that's specific to the market. Um, so we're one of the only operators that does that and I've had a lot of other operators tell me that uh, that you're crazy that we're that <laughs> hey we're we get the space part yeah. but we don't get all that programming stuff and so what they try to do is invite others to host their programs in their space which which is successful but you're not able to kind of really track uh, you're not able to do an intake and tracking process with your members to actually look at them develop while they're, you know, um, sharing part of their journey with you as a, a member in the co-working I mean, space. In a, in a classic entrepreneur sense, right, there's some folks that want to own the entire vertical, yeah. and there's some folks that just want to own a slice of the vertical and mm-hmm. have and bring in, you know, outside resources and whatever shape that industry is right. to service the other verticals. The benefit of owning the entire vertical stack is you control it. Yeah. Right now, with that comes its own set of challenges, obviously, along the way that it right. seems like you've um, probably seen a few of those challenges over the yeah. course of the last eight years. 
Yeah, well, to the, to the greatest degree, we try to supply a contiguous set of resources so that people don't fall off the cliff at any stage of their development. Um, all that being said, you can't be all things to all people. True. Um, so that's where, uh, if you look at how our model has evolved, let me, let, I'll finish kind of the narrative. The, so we started in Winston-Salem and evolved our basic business model there. The next thing that happened was Davidson College came to us uh, and said, we see what you're doing here. We love what you're doing here. We want to start an innovation center in Davidson that allows us to blend uh, student entrepreneurship with the private sector, with startup companies in the private sector, co-locate those activities uh, in, in, uh, in an entrepreneurship and innovation uh, center. And that's what led to them. They hired us to uh, design and operate the hub facility. In Back to the original intent of the business, right? Right. Design. <laughs> right. And, uh, and it was very successful. When the, when the hub uh, at Lake, in the Lake Norman area opened day one, it was profitable on day one. It was fully loaded day one. Gorgeous facility, yeah, there by was, the way. There was a real high demand. And, you know, obviously that community um, is a high wealth community. Yep. Um, and has a lot of very talented um, business, experienced business people that are that are part of the greater Charlotte region that choose to live in the Lake Norman area. Um, a lot of wealth in that community. It's the highest wealth zip code in North Carolina, right? So there was a lot of pent-up demand in, in even though it's Davidson is a, a very small town, there was a lot of pent-up demand in the Lake Norman region for this kind of um, tangible place, tangible center where a community of entrepreneurs can gather and, and execute on, you know, purposeful work. Um, and, uh, of course, with Wake Forest and our situation in, in Winston-Salem being surrounded by higher education institutions, we knew how, uh, to, to borrow a phrase, we knew how to blend that whiskey, how to, how to blend, you know, the academic and the the uh, the uh, experiential learning opportunities uh, for the student population to do project work, to do research, to do you know uh, startup companies love to engage students you know to execute on a lot of the 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 tasks that are needed for them to do market research, market analytics, things of that nature, and we formalize that programmatically in a lot of. A lot of programs at, at the hub in collaboration with Davidson College. So we operated that for two years and then turned the operations over to Davidson College. Um, very successful uh, uh, project and actually is kind of a benchmark for a lot of liberal arts institutions now that want to, you know, spin up uh, entrepreneurship and innovation kind of program as part of their academic experience. Um, and knowing that we were going to be turning over the operations to Davidson, uh, in the meantime, the Economic Development Corporation here in Concord started recruiting us. And initially, we were pretty hesitant because we didn't have a premier academic institution uh, per se. Uh, UNC Charlotte is close by, but not you know not completely in the community. Um, and uh, Barbara Scotia is here, but you know is kind of 
rebuilding themselves. So we, we didn't really have the, the strong uh, academic institutional component that we, that we normally look for in, when we're doing uh, uh, location selections and things of that nature. But what we did have here was explosive growth demographics. I mean, Concord has gone from being, you know, way under 100,000 in population to way over 100,000 in population in less than a decade, um, and uh, is now the 10th largest city in North Carolina. Um, and so when we started looking at the actual numbers and looking at the demographics in the community, it was appealing. We, we realized that we were kind of had the opportunity to get in front of a, what was going to be a pretty big wave of growth and uh, increase in uh, demographics in the community. <clears throat> and uh, so we, we told this community, we said, look, we, we will come here and help you deploy uh, an entrepreneurship and innovation facility if you all commit to it. And they said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, what that means is that everybody in the community that cares about or is doing anything involving entrepreneurship needs to co-locate in the facility with us. We want everybody all in on the effort. And in addition to that, we'd like to see financial support from the community in the form of uh, helping underwrite the capital expense to, to open the facility and also to underwrite the programming. And this community has come through uh, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, uh, the, Cha the Economic Development Corporation, Chamber of Commerce, the Small Business Center are all co-located here. Um, uh, we've got a, a, a entrepreneurship council with about 15 organizations on it that decide about the programming and how to deliver services through the through the Cabrera Center that's powered by Flywheel um, and the both the city the county and the private foundations in this community have are all leaned in financially with uh, the financial support that you need to staff programs yep. um, so we're now running a, a world-class kind of venture mentor services program here that's operated under the MIT license. We have a program called Retail Lab that supports uh, Main Street entrepreneurs with product or service ideas that you know can be uh, developed through brick and mortar or uh, e-commerce or both and we, we have a training program for that. And it's been very successful, one of the most successful programs we've ever run. Um, so the community kind of committing to the project was the key ingredient here. Uh, we went through, we took them through a process called strategic doing to, a, to define um, what the mission of the location would be and what, what the key projects were that everybody could contribute to early on. Um, we continue to use that process to develop, you know, kind of the next steps of what we're gonna be developing here. Um, so that proved to us that uh, as that that kind of community commitment was another essential component of our site selection process. And what we were now expanding quite rapidly. Um, we have a very large project uh, in construction in Greenville, South Carolina that we've been developing for several years. 
Um, that'll be opening in May of 2024. And we have, uh, now through the foundation we have an affiliate location program where we will help rural communities and smaller cities and towns uh, activate their entrepreneurship ecosystems and uh, design develop and deploy uh, entrepreneurship and innovation centers co-working innovation centers that they are they're going to run it it's going to be their uh, their operation, but we help them with our playbook and we help them with, with you know, the getting it up and running and getting it operating. Uh, and then they become part of our, net, our membership network. It's reciprocal membership in those locations, if almost, you're an affiliate location. Almost like a franchise model, right, where you built the system that works and you're just yeah. going in there and helping them yeah, execute is. that model so that it's a lot more successful for them than trying to get it off the ground on their own. Yeah, it's 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 basically it's a licensing agreement. Yeah. They 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 license our playbook and yep. then we recertify them on an annual basis. Uh, and then the advantage for the especially for the rural communities is that they can then network into the larger uh, communities and we can exchange subject matter expertise, mentors and a lot of the resources that that are not necessarily you know the strength of the rural locations which gives you the network effect which um is such a powerful effect right yeah. like we've talked a little bit about venture for america and the network effect that they have with their fellows across 13 different communities and now you're doing the same thing so you've got uh, winston kind of sort of davidson experience wise concord greenville where else are you going so North Wilkesboro is now open as an affiliate location. Yep. Um, we're in. We have a project in development in Greensboro, North Carolina, and we have uh, an affiliate location in development in um, in Rowan County. Okay. Uh, which we think is going to be located in Spencer. So uh, there's a opportunity, a unique opportunity in Spencer, which is basically part of the Salisbury area, if you will. Um, uh, has an incredible uh, uh, rail railway museum, by yes. the way, which everybody who's listening to this podcast should go check out. It's a it's a beautiful little community. It's it's going to require a very innovative uh, strategy to be successful, but we think we've got all the right ingredients to make it work. And they'll they're um, interested in coming on board as an affiliate location. So when we started this conversation, before we hit record, you said there'd be no way we'd get to 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, and you, you barely had a chance to think, and we're at 50 minutes. Yeah. And we hadn't had a chance to cover one of the things that we both wanted to touch base on, and you mentioned it a couple of times as we've gone back and forth. Yeah. You've got the conference coming up, right? Yeah. So Converge South, it's kind of like the, I don't want to say it's the crowning achievement, but it, I mean, it's such a cool thing to stick on top of everything else that we've talked about so let's dive into the the conference for a couple minutes here and what is it how did it come about um, just yeah. educate us on what you're doing so convert south is uh, a really unique uh, celebration of scalable investable entrepreneurship um, it it's different from most of the events that are put on like pitch events or startup conferences and so forth which tend to be more kind of curated 
uh, experiences. And what's different about C- Converge South is it's it's a expo. So we have um, uh, an exposition hall that will have around eighty startup companies with demo tables, um, and uh, it's a two-day conference, so they'll they'll have two days to kind of interact with investors that are coming to town because there's almost no event of its kind that has this kind of uh, concentration and quantity of emerging early and growth stage startups in one place at one time. So what the investors love about it that attend the conference is uh, it's, it's a very efficient way for them to kind of find out about what, what the emerging companies are within a region and identify companies that they might want to put on their watch list or actually we, we do have every year we have several investments that are made directly as a result of an investor meeting at, at Converge South. Um, so the, uh, the, we typically have around 500 attendees that attend over two days. Um, the expo hall is op- open both days. We draw investors from Atlanta up to DC, so it's it's a kind of a southeast southeastern uh, mega regional uh, draw in terms of the investment community that participates in the event, um, and we run um, simultaneous uh, educational tracks. Uh, for early stage, growth stage, and established small businesses. So we'll have 30 educational programs uh, running over two days about the, the kind of the latest technologies, the latest topics. Obviously, this year's big thing is AI. Yeah, of course. Um, cybersecurity is still a really strong topical trend. And, you know, how, how financing works, how to enter the capital stack, what your options are for... Uh, growth stage financing is always, you know, one of the big subjects that that we run. Um, but so to dive in there really quick, so um, the concept con kind of sounds crazy to me, right? Like you business development, which and you've mentioned it a couple of times, right? Main Street businesses that are here too, but you're putting Main Street businesses in the same place as growth stage businesses in your conference, right? I mean, there's... Well, you know, the Converge South is really more focused on scalable, investable, uh, growth-oriented growth businesses. However, we get a strong attendance by the Main Street businesses because of the educational programming. Okay. And quite honestly, the um, the importance of the, the Main Street type business is it's the first entrepreneurial experience for, for many individuals, right? So... Uh, and uh, it, you know, they may choose to go on to a scalable, investable uh, enterprise in the future. So uh, the the founders of Main Street businesses uh, is a pretty strong audience component for the conference, simply because they're it's a it's a learning environment for them. They can come and learn and listen about how how this whole you know uh, growth capital thing works and and what's involved in. Uh, growing and scaling a business out. A lot of our Main Street businesses that run through programs like Retail Lab are scalable uh, through uh, e-commerce or scalable through franchising and licensing type arrangements. Uh, And we have educational programming during Converge South about franchising, about licensing, and 
things of that nature. So there's there's relevant content for Main Street businesses, but the Expo Hall and all of the main stage programming, uh, which includes keynotes and um, you know um, program presentations about major programs that we're running, and uh, has. Uh, uh, extended pitch deliveries by kind of pre-selected the top pre-selected uh, companies that are in, uh, in in the southeastern region come to get on main stage and pitch to the investors. So the the main the exhibit hall and the main stage components are almost all focused on uh, investable scalable companies, but there's a lot of content that's relevant for established small businesses as well as main street businesses. Yeah. So. You've essentially identified that entrepreneurship has a boatload of common themes to it. Yeah. The scalable businesses end up in a in a different room from time to time, right? Because they have their own set of challenges. But so many challenges that any entrepreneur would face are very similar. Right. Scalable businesses just face them at a faster clip, or they have some additional challenges that come their way. Versus Main Street, obviously, have their own set of different challenges that come their way as well, right? But there's there's so many common themes there for them to tackle. Yep. So and Convert South is also an example of listening to the founders. So we one of our philosophies as an organization is. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of customer discovery. We do a lot of uh, 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 surveying of our membership base and so forth to make sure that we're actually delivering stuff that our members care about. Yeah. And that, that is really effective for founders and for entrepreneurs. So Sounds like a startup, right? Constantly yeah, so surveying your users. We're founder-focused yeah. in all of our activities. Um, and Converge South evolved from... Uh, it started in 2016 as the demo day for our new ventures program that I talked about earlier, the investment, the unique kind of investment program that we created to create an opportunity to enter the capital stack for if you're an investable company. And, uh, and our, first, our very first demo day was very well attended in the local community. And some of the feedback that we got was from all the other entrepreneurs in the region that said, hey, we weren't part of your new ventures program, but we'd like to get the same kind of opportunity to to show show ourselves, you know, and um, you know, in a in an exhibit hall kind of demo environment. And we thought about it. And we said, okay, well, next year we'll open this up to all startups in the region, and we'll have an application based process, and we'll we'll make it a a full day thing. So the the very first year it was like a three-hour main stage kind of typical demo day of that a lot of accelerator programs run. The second year, it was a full-day conference uh, with keynotes and with we, that's when we started the educational programming. But that is when we decided to go regional in scope in terms of the exhibiting startups. And once we started down that path, it grew into a statewide draw and then it, drew, it grew into a Southeast regional kind of conference where we had people attending from all, o- all over the Southeast and startups applying from all over the Southeast. So each year it got bigger and bigger. Uh, then we decided to make it a two-day conference and we merged with uh, the, a pre-existing conference that was called Converge South. So we, we were calling our thing 
New Ventures demo days. Um, and uh, uh, parallel with us, uh, the Converge South Conference uh, was evolving and was very focused on digital marketing. That was the primary focus of their audience, which is relevant to, very relevant to our startup community. And when the pandemic hit, that, that conference basically just disappeared, but we had always loved it and we loved the name and everything. So we called the founders and we said, how about if we merge our two conferences into one thing, you know, that's still about uh, all things digital, still relevant to the digerati and the audience, but uh, is more founder focused and more about, you know, uh, scalable, investable, uh, startups, and so we merged the two conferences together, which had a huge impact on our uh, audience and attendance levels. And then we realized, as our network grew, as we started growing into other regions like the Charlotte region and uh, the upstate South Carolina region, and on and on as we continued to grow, that it was the kind of conference that we could move around from region to region. So this is the first year that we've held Converge South outside of the Triad North Carolina region. We're bringing it to Charlotte. In 2024, in the springtime, we're going to be running another Converge South in Greenville, South Carolina, and so on and so forth. So we'll keep kind of moving the conference around the, the various regions that we serve with our, uh, with our innovation centers. So, well, uh, I mean, it's again, it's an awesome story from um, uh, an entrepreneur perspective, yeah. right? So, yes, yeah. you know, yes, 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 yes. So your your audience, you know, should attend. I mean, it's it's a great conference for them to learn about um, all things entrepreneurship and scalable, investable uh, uh, kind of uh, entrepreneurial activity. The website is convergesouth.com. And the, the conference is going to be held here in Concord on October 5th and 6th. It's going to, it's, it's going to be a, a real blast because we're, we're kind of taking over two blocks of downtown Concord, which is in the middle of all this construction and all this growth going on. And we're using three venues, including we're erecting essentially a circus tent, a 4,000 square foot tent behind the Cabrera Center to have enough capacity for all the exhibiting startups. So it's it's going to be a real a real blast. Well, thanks for all you do for the entrepreneurial community. Thanks for bringing Converge South here to Charlotte. Um, we'll get this out before then and look forward to seeing you back here on October 5th and 6th yeah. and hopefully again next year out in Greenville. So thanks so much for being part of the podcast today, Peter. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, William. I appreciate it. William Bissett is owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve the substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. 
there generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.